Well, good evening, and it is wonderful to be with you tonight. Um, isn't it great to be together, learning and growing together? Recently, I had the opportunity to go. Yeah. Um, I recently had the opportunity to go to the sharing life together gathering, and that was so wonderful. And tonight is wonderful as well. I want to give a special shout out to Martha and. Um, and Duncan, because they're doing the heavy lifting on all of this, getting this together, um, and the women's leadership team. Can we give them just a, a round of applause? Well, here it is, February 5th. How did we get all, of, all the way to February 5th? It just seems like Christmas, you know, we think about the excitement of Christmas. Well, now at this point, it's just a distant memory. We think about the warmth and the vibrancy of the coming spring. Well, guess what? That's a few months away. So here we are in February, what is the shortest month, but can oftentimes seem like one of the longest months. Martha mentioned that I'm a teacher, and a teacher looks at the February calendar, and if there's something to celebrate, we celebrate it. <laughs> Last Thursday was Groundhog Day. That is high drama for a seven-year-old. Is that rodent going to see its shadow? And then, of course, there's President's Day. You can build curriculum around that. And then, of course, there is Valentine's Day. I'm reminded of the story of little Emily who had some learning disabilities, but she was enrolled in a regular general ed education classroom. Valentine's Day came and she was so excited. She wanted to do something very special for each one of her classmates. So she got out the construction paper. She wanted to make homemade Valentines. And she got out the glitter and the glue and she made all of the Valentines. The day came and mom dropped her off in the carpool line. She had her little bag of Valentines and mom was hoping for the best that the day would go well. Well, that afternoon, her mom picked her up and she couldn't tell how Emily was feeling by looking at her face, but she looked down at the bag and it didn't look particularly full. She got in the car and she said, not one, not a single one. And her mother's heart sank. And then Emily said, I didn't forget a single one. <laughs> what would we say about Emily? We would probably say, Emily's got a good heart. How's your heart this February? And when I use the word heart, I'm not talking about our beating organ. I'm not talking and giving an advertisement for Cardia Mobile that you can get, you know, for $99 on Amazon.com. I'm using heart the way the Bible uses the word heart. It's our core and central being, including our mind, will, and emotions. It's you in all of your wonderful human complexity. So where's your mind this February? Is it scattered? Is it distracted? Are you waiting for brighter days, perhaps wishing you were in the Bahamas? How about your emotions? Are they trending negative? Researchers tell us that even the brightest and happiest among us can begin to experience a sense of sadness this time of year. And how about your will? Has it become lethargic? 
Have you been thinking, you know, those New Year's resolutions, I really should get back on them, but somehow I'm not quite as motivated as I was in the 1st of January? Or is there just an overall weariness? Because circumstances come and go. And let's be honest, sometimes they come and stay. So the question is, how do we keep our heart healthy? For that matter, how do we face the darker, colder days of our life with a sense of dignity and hope? Or how do we face the warmer, brighter days with grace and perspective? Some would say, you know, you just got to keep a balanced life. And yes, that can be helpful. That can preempt some of our struggles. Others would say you got to maintain close relationships with friends and family. And again, yes, very helpful, especially when we hit the rough patches in life. Others would say you got to keep a sense of humor. Proverbs tells us that a cheerful heart is good medicine. And of course, there's always the opportunity to talk it out with a counselor or a confidant. All of these are helpful, but I would submit to you what is absolutely essential is worship. Worship of the one true living God. Because as Christians, we believe that our hope, our help does not come from within us. It doesn't come even from around us, but it comes from looking up to our Lord and Maker. I've chosen Psalm 95 that is a very familiar psalm to us as Anglicans for the basis for my remarks tonight. If we'll tune our ears to hear this psalm in a fresh way. Oh, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. And put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. My outline tonight is very simple. What is worship? Who do we worship? How do we worship? And why do we worship? And I hope that each one of us tonight will leave with a renewed sense of God being worthy of our joyful and engaged worship, and that it is that very worship that is the source of our well-being. That is how we remain and uh, maintain a healthy heart. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful and thankful for your active, holy, and transformative word. Your truth endures from generation to generation. I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things in your law. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. I pray these things in the name of our rock and redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So what is worship? 
Worship is ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages your entire being to the point that you and your life are changed. I want us to notice uh, the various aspects of our human personality that are addressed in this psalm. For instance, first our emotions. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. This is emotional language. We sing, we shout when our emotions are engaged. Why do we like to sing? We like to sing because singing expresses human thought emotionally. One modern day hymn writer puts it this way, I sing because I'm free to run from all that tore me apart and to run to all that is making me whole. Now I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I guess a fair number of you have the same voice musically as I do. <laughs> Let's call it the joyful noise part. <laughs> Psychologists tell us that we like what we're good at, but that's not necessarily the case uh, here in my case because I like to sing, sing in my heart and even out loud, especially when I'm alone. For instance, if I'm taking a walk around the neighborhood and overcome by the beauty of the earth, I may sing, Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Or if I'm anticipating a challenging day, I may uh, sing a mighty fortress and I'll pers personalize it is my God, a bulwark never failing. Or if I just need to be reminded of the simplest and best truth, there's nothing better than Jesus loves me, this I know. How do you sing for joy to the Lord? Now there's certainly a place for more somber, reflective mood in individual and corporate worship but it should never overshadow the presiding tone of abiding joy in a believer's life. Augustine said a Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. Our emotions are engaged, but also our will is engaged. We hear twice here, oh come. This psalm is called the Venite. We sing this song in our service of morning prayer. It's an invitation. It's even a command, but it involves a choice. Our emotions are engaged. Our will is engaged. Even our body is engaged. We're told to bow down and to kneel before the Lord, our maker. And also our mind is engaged. Stay with me on this one. In the latter part of the psalm, the psalmist is setting up a reasoned argument. He says, if you hear his voice, and then he goes on to talk about our rational response. If you hear his voice, you would be wise to heed his voice. And so the psalmist is addressing the fullness of our being and our wonderful complexity and depth, our mind, will, emotions, and even our body, all engaged to the point that we are changed. Now I'm sure that you notice by the end of the psalm, the tone changes, shifts quite a bit. He's addressing the desired difference between the generation that he's addressing and that includes us by extension because this word has been preserved for us and the generation that left Egypt and wandered in the wilderness. Their emotions had been engaged. After passing through the Red Sea, they sang. They shouted for joy. Their bodies were engaged. They walked through the desert for 40 years. They danced with tambourines. Their mind was engaged. They had been given the very word of God the Ten Commandments. But ultimately, their wills resisted. They went astray. 
And so that is very instructive for us because we can have an emotional experience in a religious setting. We can walk through the motions of a Christian life. We can listen and comprehend um, with our minds solid biblical teaching like we hear every Sunday at Holy Trinity. But for worship to be worship, our wills must be engaged. There must be a willingness to be engaged to the point of change. Benjamin Franklin, speaking of education, said, Tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. Involve me. Engage me and I learn. Well, God is our ultimate teacher. He's our ultimate guide. And he tells us to bring every aspect, our whole selves, to him in worship. What's your tendency before the Lord? To bring your emotions, but check your mind at the door? To bring your mind, but keep your emotions at bay? Or maybe to bring both, but remain resistant to his transformative work? What might we gain if we brought our whole heart to him in worship? A deeper understanding of his ways? A greater sensitivity and love for him and for those around us? Real change in the person we know deep down we were created to be. So that is what is worship. Secondly, who it is that we worship. The psalmist rehearses the excellencies of the Lord, describing him in three major ways. First, the Lord is a great God. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. Romans tells us that creation reveals God's divine nature and his eternal power. But God is not only powerful, he's also personal. This psalm describes him as the tender shepherd. We are the people of his pasture. In other words, we know him and are known by him. We love this pastoral image, don't we? Probably because we relate to wandering, wayward sheep. They're really cute, but man can they go astray. They need guidance and protection, and they're vulnerable. They need to be bound up and carried when they become wounded. This year, I'm teaching students working to become proficient in grade level standards, both in math and in reading. From kindergarten to second grade, the idea is that students are learning to read. And then from third grade on, the idea is that students are, are reading to learn. With students in general, but particularly those most vulnerable, the old adage is true. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. Sometimes they just need a hug. And we're just the big kids, right? Most of us are struggling with proficiency in some area of life. We want to worry less, pray more, curb that critical spirit, purge those perfectionistic tendencies. And we too find ourselves in some pretty vulnerable spots. Well, Scripture affirms that the one that we worship is our great creator, God, but that doesn't mean he's distant or cold. He's near, like a tender shepherd. He knows us deeply and cares for us individually, tenderly, as the sheep of his hand. So he's the great shepherd, 
and the tender shepherd. He's the great God, but he's also described as the great king above all gods. Now, this statement does not imply that the psalmist believed that there were other gods. He means that Israel's God is greater than any false god. After God's defeat of the no-gods of Egypt at the Exodus, Israel saying, Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And the implied answer is no one. And today our temptation is not in worshiping the false no-gods of ancient Egypt, but as Tim Keller puts it, the human heart is like an idle factory that takes good things like a successful career, a love relationship, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think we can, they can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. A co-worker of mine recently has returned to church, and she told me recently that she's been realizing her little G-God is control. She's taken a good thing, like a sense of having things in good working order and being organized, and made it an ultimate thing. She describes her response to challenges as playing whack-a-mole. If something seems to pop up in her life, her job is to whack that thing down <laughs> as quick as she can and get it under control. But after being in a Bible study, studying the Lord's character, she told me, and I want to quote here, I'm learning I don't have to be controlled by a need to be in control. She's realizing she can exchange trust in herself to get everything under control to trust in God who is ultimately in control. Each one of us has an object, even a good thing, to which we ascribe greatest value. And over time, our lives can subtly become controlled by it. My friend told me that her wanting to get everything under control was squeezing the joy out of every bit of her life. The psalmist says, God, the one true living God, is a better object of worship than all other options. All other little G-gods will fail you and me, leaving us exhausted. Whether that little G-god is control or comfort or appearance or health or success or you fill in the blank. Only God is the very source and sustainer of life. He's our maker and our God, the shepherd of our souls. On what aspect of God's character do you need to meditate? Perhaps on his sovereignty over all things as the creator and Lord? Or maybe you need to focus on his nearness and his tenderness as the good shepherd. Or perhaps his supremacy as king above all other things that would compete for his high position. So that's what we are what is worship and who we worship? Thirdly, how do we worship? We worship in community. Over and over again, this psalm says, let us, let us sing, let us make a joyful noise, let us come, let us worship. If we were to southernize this psalm, we might say, come on, y'all, it's time to sing. Individual worship is so important. It's foundational to our spiritual formation. But this psalm is primarily talking about our corporate worship together. 
And that is something that we all have in common. And when I was praying about what to speak on tonight, I thought that's what we all have in common is our corporate worship together. And I wanted to highlight briefly how our Anglican worship service engages our whole being, our mind, will, and emotions, even our bodies. Because we're not spectators on Sunday morning. Our worship service is highly participatory. We begin by seeing a theological hymn that is just, or a traditional hymn that's rich in theological depth, designed to elevate our thoughts over the cares of this week, or if you have young children over the rush of the morning. And later, we sing a new chorus, which may use simpler language, but it's no less stirring as the words can quickly uh, sink those 16 inches from our head down to our heart, moving us emotionally. We respond collectively to a call to worship and a prayer for purity. We listen thoughtfully to the Old Testament lesson, and then we physically stand for the gospel reading. All of this serving, what educators call schema or background knowledge, so that our minds can receive and our wills to apply the word of God as it will be taught in the sermon. We encourage each other and ourselves affirming and declaring our beliefs in the various creeds. We physically kneel in prayer for the needs of our world, our denomination, our church at large, and members of our body. And as a side note, I love that we often pray for the work of individuals in business, media, education, sports, and the arts, because it does remind us that worship is not about being so heavenly minded we're no earthly good, but rather it involves fulfilling our responsibilities with integrity and an attitude of service. We kneel with our body, or if we're if not able, in our spirits, confessing our sin. And not every Christian tradition provides space for this in a corporate setting where our physical body is representing the spiritual reverence, reverence that we have before the Lord. We greet one another. That's become very active, joyful, and engaging. I think sometimes the clergy may think it's like herding cats trying to get us all back together again. We encounter the Lord through Holy Communion, walking forward or back as it were. And afterwards, in that high and holy moment, we stand and sing a contemplative hymn as we consider all that Christ has done on our behalf and in our place. And after that recessional hymn of triumph and celebration, we're dismissed with these words. And this is a pop quiz. I'm going to have you fill in the blank. Let us go forth how? Rejoicing, yeah, rejoicing in the good news of Christ. And so each Sunday we enjoy that engaged, joyful worship. We're not spectators. We're not just watching, but we're invited to participate in wholehearted devotion. We worship him in um, community. We also worship him in truth. John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. I love that we are encouraged to look at the Bible that's provided for us in the pews. I don't know about you, but I'm a visual learner. So it helps me to not only hear the words, but to also see the words as they are being spoken. 
And the psalmist knows his word is truth as he's submitting himself to the self-revelation of God found in Scripture as creator, maker, king, and shepherd. Because without Scripture as our guide and rule of who God is, the temptation is to, to design our own God. We may start with a little Christianity, add a little spirituality of the day, mix in a little sentimentality, pour on the self-help, and before you know it, you've got your own patchwork God, just a collective projection of the God that we've dreamed up in our minds. And that little G God can't be a shepherd king to you or to me. He can't challenge or change you. He can't heal or restore you. And he certainly can't draw you into an everlasting, unconditional love relationship. Aren't we thankful for a church that affirms scripture is, that is trustworthy as God's written word? And aren't we also thankful for our corporate worship service that touches our entire being by renewing our minds, stirring our emotions, and shaping our wills? We've talked about what is worship, who we worship, how we worship, and finally, why do we worship? We've certainly covered the primary reason. It's because he's worthy of all of our praise as the object of ultimate value in our life. But these last verses of this psalm offer another reason. It's for our very own well-being. We get to learn from the former Israelites' negative example. We get to eat off their plate because they did not enter his rest. The Bible gives us examples to follow, the Bible also gives us examples not to follow, and we learn from both. In school, um, this is called examples and non-examples. If you give a child an example of a subtraction problem and how it's done correctly, and right beside it, you give them an example of a subtraction problem and how it's done incorrectly, and you have them verbalize what was done wrong in the subtraction problem that was not done correctly, they learn from that just having to verbalize that. Well, here, we get to learn from their example. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day in Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. I want to note uh, several words here. First of all is the word today. Today, if you hear his voice. Today means now. It's applicable every day. It's unlike the uh, sign that I saw at the coast last summer that read, free beer tomorrow. <laughs> and so every time you walked in, you were one day away from the God's offer of rest, of life, and peace, and purpose is good today, and every day is today. We don't rest on the past, nor do we put off to some future date, but we continue in what God has begun in us today. Second, harden. These verses talk about the Israelites hardening their heart. To harden your heart is to make it dull, unresponsive, insensitive. And then the warning gets very specific here. It says, don't do what they did at Meribah and Massa. And so we think, okay, you've got our attention, Lord. What did they do? 
Well, they grumbled against Moses and thereby testing God. Despite having experienced God's faithfulness, his goodness, his provision, time and time again, was life easy in the wilderness? No. But was God's presence leading them every step of the way, guiding, protecting along the journey? Yes. Much like the wildernesses that we face in our lives today. Deuteronomy tells us that their clothes didn't wear out. Not even the sandals on their feet wore out. The word grumble is an onomatopoeia. You say, what? <laughs> it's a word that sounds just like what it means, like snap, crackle, and pop. But grumble, grumble, is not so cute. We're not grateful when we grumble. We're not joyful when we grumble. And grumbling can, if not checked, lead to a dull, calloused, hard heart. And think about it. What is it that matters most to God? Is it your words? Is it your actions? Is it your service? Your giving? Your Bible study? Your prayer? Your church attendance? All of those things are so important. But the most important thing to God is your heart. Because it's out of your heart that all these other things flow. Scripture says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's only a good tree that produces good fruit. And so these Israelites didn't experience the fullness of God's blessing because of their hard heart. But the converse is true. If we hear his voice and heed his voice coming before him with a joyful and thankful heart, it leads to our well-being, what Scripture calls here rest. Now, this is a word that is packed with meaning, but it's enjoying God's presence forever. And this rest is consummated in the promised land, heaven, when our faith becomes sight, but it's also inaugurated now through peace with God and purpose in life. And as we take the whole counsel of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, we know that we have a spiritual rest that comes from believing the gospel. And apart from the grace of God shown in the gospel of Christ, we're all working spiritually. The moral person is working to do enough good things, believing if I do enough good things, maybe God will accept me. Well, there's no rest in that. How do you know if you've ever done enough? That's not the gospel. And even the secular-minded person is working too. They're serving their object of ultimate value. If I'm beautiful enough, if I'm smart enough, if I'm together enough, if I'm prosperous enough, maybe I'll be somebody. That's certainly not the gospel. The gospel ends all this striving, tiring, spiritual work because it says what Jesus said, it is finished. The call to worship is the call to join ourselves to Jesus, to believe him, to receive him, and to offer ourselves to God the Father through him. So this February, you may find yourself already in the pleasant, coming, warm, vibrant days of spring. Or right now, you may be experiencing the grayer, colder, winter of the soul. But either way, we can bring our open, teachable hearts to him. 
because it is in wholehearted devotion to and intimacy with God that we step into the fullness of God's purposes for us and become that person, again, that we know deep down we were created to be. D.L. Moody said, give your life to God. He can do a lot more with it than you can. <laughs> I want to end with this encouragement. We won't perfectly devote ourselves to him this side of heaven, and he knows that. He's so gracious and patient, and he knows our frame. But we can progressively bring more and more of our heart, including our mind, our will, and our emotions to him in joyful, engaged worship. And since we've referenced several hymns tonight, I thought I'd close with a verse from Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you tonight for the gift of worship. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have as believers to come boldly before your throne of grace. We marvel and we think about all that we can uh, run from that has been tearing us apart and that we can run to you, the one who is making us whole. We know it's ultimately for your glory, and we receive, Lord, that it's also for our good. Lord, would you fill us with an increasing measure um, in our heart to love you more and more, that we might seek you and know you and serve you as we look to you, our object of ultimate value our Lord and King and Maker, our Redeemer and Friend. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.